Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Ship It and Sip It. I'm very excited to have another founder on the show today. His name is Chris Fernandez, and he is the founder of Body, which is a health tech startup based in the UK. Chris, welcome to the show. Nice to see you, John. Uh, all right, so since the theme of the show is Ship It and Sip It, can you pick one thing that you've uh, shipped recently that you'd like to tell the audience about? Um, I guess we yesterday we 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 shipped our marketing video for 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 the boot camps that we're running, and that was a pretty funny experience recording it because I hate recording myself on camera, and so I did like thirty takes before send, sending the final one over. Okay, well, and today you're recording this show again, so two days in a row in front of the camera. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm sorry, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, as well as being a founder, Chris is also the co-creator, a co-creator of the Parallect Bootcamp, which is our second main topic for today's show, along with Victoria Antonovich and Igor Krasnick from our team. So I guess we will start uh, with your location and background a little bit. So you're based in the UK, spend a lot of time in Portugal as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about the scenes there as a founder and what you've learned. Yeah, so I've lived in the UK and Liverpool. Well, not only Liverpool, but I've lived in the UK for about um, five five years now, about five or six years. Um, I studied here as well in, in Liverpool, and I started being a founder here as well. Um, before here, I lived in Portugal, um, where, where, where I finished high school. So... Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed living in Liverpool purely because I find it to be a way smaller version of a of a city like London, for example, and it's way more cozy than a place like Manchester, in in my opinion. And for anyone who's been to Manchester, Liverpool would probably spot the difference because everything's really close together, and it's quite normal to see a lot of people that you you might have seen before. In terms of the startup scene. Um, I guess it it's kind of similar in that aspect that it's really cozy. So like you go to a lot of startup events in the region and you tend to see similar faces every time. So you can be quite friendly with them. You know you can rely on them and you probably see them walking around some of the startup areas around the city. So for example, in, the, in Liverpool, we've got an area called the Baltic Triangle where a lot of the tech startups are based. Um, and you tend to see a lot of familiar faces that you can you, you can ask questions, you can rely upon, um, and you can just have a quick chat with. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, I guess let's dive into how you and Victoria connected and sort of the genesis for the boot camp. Yeah, it was, um, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a funny story, but it was kind of just a, we, we connected on LinkedIn, um, and then I happened to be in Lisbon in December, um, around j just before Christmas time. And I knew that Victoria was based in Lisbon and we just decided to go for a coffee to talk about startups because I knew she was the founder of Altos and she was working at Parallect. And obviously as the founder of a startup myself and someone who's worked at Venture Studios, I thought there'd probably be a lot of knowledge sharing, but just nice to get to know people in the startup um, community and I actually at that point did know anyone in the, from the startup community that lived in Lisbon so it was quite an interesting way to do that um, we, we, we kind of just met for a coffee and we spoke for about two hours about how um, how difficult it is sometimes for founders to build traction how, how difficult it is to navigate fundraising sometimes as first-time founders um, but also a bit about the challenges we both face working at Venture Studios. So it was kind of a really good general discussion on startups in the community. Cool. And that happened in December and the bootcamp is already launching in February. So it's a very short time frame. Uh, so tell us about that process. How did you really flesh out the idea and how did you guys make it happen so quickly? Yeah, I I mean, the great thing is that we never really, it was never a formal conversation. It wasn't like, let's sit down and create a project plan. 
we kind of shared ideas. We we met about we met twice while I was in Lisbon, and just carried on. Um, I'd say discussing it into January, and then by the end of Jan- January, Victoria was like, "Yeah, we want to do it. Parallax wants to do it. We'll kind of bring you on board. Let's work together, and we'll make this happen." And that was like on on a Thursday, and then by Monday the following week or maybe it was a week after, we kind of just got started on creating a project plan. Um, But the crazy thing is, it wasn't like we started creating it on day one of when I started working with Parallax. It was kind of, we already started discussing it back in December when we first met, and it was kind of just putting everything to paper then, and then trying to formalize it a bit more, getting a landing page up and running. And I mean, on... I kind of started formally working on the boot camp on Monday. On the Tuesday and Wednesday, we drew up a project plan. Thursday, Friday, got a landing page up. And the next, the following week, we we started marketing it. So it was really quick. And I guess that's the best way to learn and, and get to market. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the landing page, it is at bootcamp.parallel.com. So go check it out. You can see more about the program and also apply if you're a founder that wants to be part of it. Uh, I guess let's go back to basics a little bit. So who's it for and what is the main goal in your perspective? So I guess the I'll, I'll speak about this bootcamp from a founder perspective to begin with. And the, the ideal founders we want to work with are idea stage tech founders. So people who have an idea um, they might not necessarily have a tech background or any tech background to begin with but they think that tech might be able to solve that problem um, so a great example that I, I use and it's actually a friend who started a, um, a software business he was a veterinarian um, he spotted a problem in the vet industry and he kind of started working to solve that problem. And that's the type of founder we want to work with. So someone who works in an industry, whatever domain it might be, they spot a problem and they think tech might solve it, but they don't necessarily know what the next step is. Um, And I guess when it comes to that next step, it's probably about validating whether there is a business there. So one of the biggest risks that most people who have been in the startup world already know are is building something that nobody needs or something that's not of value to anyone. And the whole goal of the bootcamp is actually to help founders figure that out to see whether there is value in what they're creating. But I think from looking at it from a founder perspective more deeper, a lot of founders don't actually know whether their heart is in a business until they've actually started working on it actually started getting into the market so um you might have a great idea and you're sitting at home but it's not actually business until you go on and start speaking to customers and what happens is that you might go speak to a lot of customers and the answers they might give you might not resonate with you it might be wrong it might invalidate your idea it might invalidate your whole hypothesis and you might decide like this startup isn't for me um and I think the goal behind the bootcamp is that founders can probably figure that out in one month rather than sitting on an idea for about three years and saying, I've always wanted to do that. Um, I have an idea. It's going to be the next big thing. And they're just, it's, it's always just an idea. So it's kind of trying to expedite that process. Right. And one of the things or two of the things that people keep talking about when it comes to early stage startups and ideas pre-MVP product ideas uh, is validation and what's the main uh, centerpiece of the bootcamp is traction. So maybe just for someone who doesn't have a firm understanding of those two uh, concepts, what are the differences or similarities between validation and early traction for a startup? Yeah, so I guess in terms of validation, it's trying to see whether... um, there is a problem that needs solving and then try to figure out whether that problem is important enough to someone that it can actually turn into a business. So that's where validation is really important and it becomes valuable when talking to investors in the future or when creating marketing material in the future because 
you're able to communicate what the business is actually doing much more effectively having gone through a process of um, problem validation or solution validation. In terms of traction, um, and that, 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 that's the big buzzword whenever you're fundraising, every investor is going to be like, what traction do you have? And there's no one's ever going to have enough traction. Um, so that's the starting point. So sometimes founders are like, okay, do I need 20 signups and will you invest? And it's like, no, <laughs> um, I'm never going to say you need X amount of signups or X amount of traction. I don't know what the number is. I'm not experienced enough. And I don't think anyone really is experienced enough to say what the actual number is. But what we can do is create targets and see how long it takes to get there and then kind of compare um, compare whether there is as much of a pull as we think and then kind of see, see, see what the res results are that way. Um, I think traction for founders is the best way of demonstrating that there is a market out there. So a lot of people go go through the process of getting people to sign up on a form they might get people to they might get businesses to give them a letter of intent they might get emails any form of communication with customers all that is traction because it's showing that there are people out there who have an interest in what you're doing um, investors love that because no one's going to invest in just an idea and as the fundraising climate becomes a bit more difficult for founders, the bar gets higher. And so the more evidence you can show that you're a good founder who can execute on, on the idea, the better. And I guess traction helps a founder too. So if you've got an idea and you raise a hundred thousand pounds and you spend six months building product and you've not actually got any customers signed up who are willing to test it out, who are willing to work with you, do interviews, um, give you feedback on product, you're kind of putting yourself in a difficult position because you've not really got any feedback to go off from the people that are actually going to become your customers or users. So I guess building traction before even having a product gives you a pipeline of people you can rely on to give you valuable feedback. So it kind of helps you in fundraising, but it also helps you in product development. Very interesting. Thank you. That's that's very helpful, I think, to to myself and anybody who's considering joining. All right. So let's talk about the name for a minute because, you know, boot camp is a pretty common term. It has a lot of associations. There are military boot camps where you, you know, learn very quickly how to be a soldier, there are fitness boot camps where you get in shape very quickly in an intense cohort setting. Um, there are coding boot camps where people learn how to program uh, and, and become developers. So the premise is all pretty uniform. It's a short, intense training program. Uh, is that sort of why you guys went with it for startups? How is it any different in this situation? Yeah, so I think we really don't want it to come across as a course we're not going to give lectures. We're not going to give essays and we're not going to give anyone homework. <laughs> um, I, I'm not qualified enough to do that. And I, I don't think anyone can really say they're qualified to do that. But I think what we can do is in a really short amount of time, give people the tools to just go out and do it on their own. And that's the whole idea behind it. Because it's, it's not easy speaking to customers and it's not easy um being humbled by a lot of them as well that that's probably one of the things a lot of founders will find out during boot camp um a lot of the founders that are going to come on also will likely have full-time jobs and that's going to make it difficult as well so i guess the whole idea behind the name boot camp is like you say a short program that's quite intensive but it's not necessarily a learning course it's more of how can we help founders and give them the tools really quickly to get stuff done Right on. And on the site, you, you've outlined that it should be uh, five five founders per cohort. Uh, how did you sort of come to that size? And why do you think it's important that there is a at least a small group of founders to learn together? Yeah, um, I guess it's got to be small enough that we can add enough value 
to each one um, to begin with. And then it's got to be big enough that the founders get enough value from each other. Um, because it's the first bootcamp that we're running, we also want to learn from it, right? So although we're running the bootcamps, we're not going to say that we're absolutely amazing at it. We're, it's a learning curve for Parallax as well. Um, so I think if we have a small, cozy group of founders that have the right energy, are willing to do the work, they can feed back to us and we can build on that. I don't think there'll ever be a situation where we're running a bootcamp for 20 founders, unless we actually grow into maybe three or four Chris's and Victoria's. Um, but I think this way we can work closely with founders. They get the most out of us. We can actually add value through Parallax channels to through our channels. And on the back end of it, it actually helps them because they're starting to get their tiny communities of people they trust. Founder be, Being a founder um, is a lonely place sometimes. Um, and so having a small group of people who are in the same stage as you going through the exact same process, you can share ideas, you can share difficulties, challenges, wins. And I think that's what a small group of five allows. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so thinking back on your or not even back, but just thinking about your experience as a founder, uh, what do you want new founders to to learn? Or how has that your founder experience informed what you want to deliver to founders through this program? Yeah, so I think um, I want it to be very much founders talking to founders so i've gone through the process of problem validation i've gone through the process of having to build up traction before getting investment for for body um and i've worked with a lot of founders who were in the same position and had zero sign up zero users and have gone on to build a bit of a bit of traction and get investment and i think that's something that gives me a lot of energy and i think speaking to founders as someone who's been in that position and who has found it difficult speaking to customers who has gone door to door, um, trying to talk to them, get them to sign up, try to demo product, um, try to be unbiased. I think that's really valuable. And the difference with maybe sometimes accelerators, not so much, it's not necessarily a negative, is that sometimes you get a lot of VCs and investors giving advice when they've not actually gone through that early stage of trying to build up the business. Um, and that's not to discredit, discredit them. They obviously know what businesses require to survive and, 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 and don't and raise enough capsule, but, and I'm not going to sit here and run the program and say, I've gone on to be a successful founder. Absolutely no means I, I would never categorize myself as that. And I don't think, um, Victoria would either. Um, but we have gone through that earliest stages of trying to get that key bit of traction to then raise our first round each and get 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 to some form of MVP and product. Um, and I think founders listening to other founders benefit that way. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, who were some of your key mentors as a founder? And maybe you don't have to name names, but uh, <laughs> what were some of the key ways that they helped you and maybe uh, it's a very similar question, but how was that learning experience for you? Did you have sort of a, a, a cohort of founders to bounce ideas off of, or was it just a social network? Um, I never really went out looking for mentors. I kind of, I was, I was naturally really good at speaking to people, I think, and making friends, <laughs> uh, making friends in the startup community, I guess. Um, I'm really transparent and I think I'm quite um, down, down to earth in, in my approach. And I think when you speak to people who have been in the industry and you ask them for help, um, they've always been, people are kind. And startup founders are really kind because they know what the struggle is of, of, of building that early stages. I guess for me, um, I've always used close family as, as my men mentorship arm, but um, I mean, 
a couple of years ago, I, I met a guy who, who I worked with closely up here in Liverpool and just not a startup founder, um, worked with startups and I've seen a lot of startups go on to raise capital. Um, and it, it, it's someone I probably lead on a lot um, regularly now as well whenever I have challenges, but I don't think you necessarily have to have someone who's an exited founder be a mentor but someone who's really level-headed, who can give you a thir- uh, a neutral viewpoint, um, tell you the pros and cons, be honest with you, um, look at things from a new light. But that That's what I look for in, in, so- in someone to help with. Um, there's a couple of people that I talk to regularly like that, and I think it helps. I don't think a founder having to reach out to an exited entrepreneur for X, Y, Z million is necessary. You just need someone who's going to be a bit rational, who's going to ask you the right questions and let you figure it out on your own. And that's what some of the people who I've worked with have given me. Very good perspective. Thanks for sharing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how the boot camp sort of fits into the overall structure of different programs and services within Parallax, uh, because we have quite a few things going on. Uh, we've got the, the bootcamp, we've got the accelerator, we've got Kickstart, we've got the Venture Studio, uh, Pavel and the guys are also working on starting up the VC fund. So there's a lot of moving parts and I wanna see how you and Victoria think that, where does the bootcamp sit within the overall? Yeah, so, I think to be able to execute on all those arms, we need to create a really good relationship with the early stage founders, because if you start building that relationship when they're at the earliest stages, it's going to benefit the business in the longer term. So when you think about what Parallax traditionally done is provide a lot of software development for, 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 for tech startups, um, and that's not where the business wants to be in the long term because of various reasons and we want to grow and we want to work with someone more closely but in order to be able to invest in businesses in the long term we need to have a really good deal flow of startups to begin with at the beginning stages so by running boot camps we're working with founders at the earliest stages ones who aren't ready for accelerators ones who don't know who their customers are yet or what problem they're solving for their customers. Now, if we can add value to them then, watch them grow in a short amount of time, watch them build an MVP, go out, fundraise. Ideally, we can see them come back to us. Maybe it's for software development, maybe it's to join the accelerator. And it kind of would allow us to work with that startup not only for one month, but we can work with them from the conception right up to the later stages where they might be, sorry, raising their Series A maybe or, or whatnot. Um, we might be investors in the long term, who knows, but it's all about creating that early relationship so that we can be with them throughout the journey. And that's how we see it to begin with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about the current situation for startups uh, in terms of funding and sort of getting in a position to grow and raise the funds they need to launch and, and grow their product. So uh, is it different now, do you think? What's the vibe in the UK um, with the current downturn and sort of the pressure from VCs to raise the bar to raise funding? It's a challenge. Um, everyone wants traction. Um... I'm, I, I can't sit here and tell you how it's changed over the past 10 years. I, I have no idea. I've not even been in the industry for that long. All I can talk about is what I've come across. I mean, last year I tried to, I've, I spoke to quite a few investors for Body. Um, I've spoken to a lot of founders who have been speaking to investors and I can only share my thoughts from, from that perspective. Um, it's really, really challenging, and most investors are looking for, as always, the, the the least risky bets 
in, in, in most cases. Um, I think that makes it, that puts a lot of pressure on early stage founders because they've got to do a lot more with a lot less. Um, so finding the right co-founder, not wasting a lot of time really early on when they've got limited funds, all that becomes really, really important. And that's why things like boot camps are important because if a founder can figure out key components of their business in one month, rather than taking six months of runway, that's going to help them get to a better position to fundraise. Um, I think a lot of founders start to get this impression that fundraising is really straightforward and you have an idea, you put a business plan or a pitch deck together and you call up a bunch of investors, you go have the calls and maybe um, you might get a 20% um, success rate and that's completely not the case. Um, it actually takes a lot longer for a startup to get to the point where they're really investable. And that is comprised of things like having the right team, um, having enough traction, being able to articulate whether there is a growing market or not. Um, are you solving a problem for, for a large group? For, are you solving a good problem for a large group of people? All these types of questions come up. And I think if some founders can't, can't articulate that well, it's probably going to be a really difficult time raising. I see a lot of people that are raising out in the US and there's a lot more money flying around. And so that bar isn't as high, at least from my perspective. Um, but I think in the UK, it's quite difficult at the moment. Um, so getting as much done leanly while you're still, while you still got an income probably is probably the best thing a founder can do. Um, watching movies and seeing people quit their jobs to run a startup, um, also is not the best advice for founders at the idea stage, because you're talking about a really tiny fraction of businesses that go on to do that. Um, and I guess I look at it from the risk point of view and I think there's so much a founder can do to make sure that there is a business there and to get the validation they need from customers to then go on and, and fundraise properly. Right. And I guess uh, the success stories always make the headlines. So if you read the news about startups that you're reading a lot about, uh, once that raised successfully and it can sort of muddy the waters a bit but uh, i wanted to bring up one point that you mentioned there which you also mentioned on a recent linkedin post and that was uh you're looking for founders who are working probably full-time but also willing to come into the boot camp and uh, build in public as we say about their new idea so i'm curious if that is in any way a limiter for people, uh, especially if they're looking to start a startup in the same domain that they're already working in. It, is there a contradiction there or am I just uh, misreading the situation? Yeah. And it's a tricky place to, it's a tricky place to be for founders. Um, a lot of companies make it difficult for people to have outside interests. Um, they'd rather it be playing basketball than running a startup. And I think open-minded companies know that having an employee have ambitions outside of their actual job will actually benefit them because they, you, you learn a lot as a founder, um, that helps you in your actual work, um, but I think it's always going to be a struggle for a founder who doesn't feel comfortable speaking about their startup, I can really advise them on what to do. Um, if they have a full-time job and want to build in public, it's kind of down to them, but it's going to limit us in terms of the founders we bring in. Um, but at the same time, that's kind of how it has to be when you're running a startup, because if you're not able, if you're not willing to speak to customers and, and talk to the community about it, you're probably going to find it difficult to get anywhere with that idea, really, it, it, in my opinion, at least. 
but there's probably ways ways around it. You could decide you want to switch careers, get a job that allows you to do it. I mean, I I, I joined Parallax, and Parallax loves that I've got body as as well because I'm learning a lot from both of both of it. Um, but I could be in another company, and it could have been the complete opposite. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Um, let's see. You have actually worked in, in venture studios other than Parallax before, so. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience, if you don't mind. And also, why do you think that this model um, is a good way to go about building startups? Yeah, I loved I loved working um, at a venture studio. Um, I kind of did some similar work in terms of working with the earliest stage founders, um, running venture readiness programs, and it was amazing work. Probably added so much to me as a founder myself. Um, work, working with a bunch of startups. Um, I think the the great thing about working with venture studios is having the support network and team around you. So I guess if you look at it from three th- three points, really, you, you you got the processes. So venture studios have worked with a lot of startups, and they can use a lot of those learnings on new businesses. So if I'm a first time founder coming into a venture studio, I can probably rely on the fact that that venture studio has probably gone through the process, made mistakes, learned from them with about 10 or 20 other startups before actually coming to my startup. So there's the repeatable processes. Um, Most venture studios are started by founders who have gone on to do, who have exited or have built really great products and now want to help other startups. So you've got that co-founding team. So when I go to fundraise in the future, I can say um, I'm a shareholder, but my co-founder is this awesome company that has done all these things. They've worked with all these businesses. They've exited. So they know my, my co-founder knows what I'm doing. So you're not referring to your co-founder as an individual, but you're co- referring to your co-founder as an entity that has probably done some really cool things in the past. Um, and then you also benefit from financing, I guess. So the whole model of venture studios or startup studios is based around, um, putting resources and and money into businesses when they're at the, at day zero, probably day zero, probably a, a little more than that. Um, so you get the benefit of financing in that, in that perspective, but I guess if you've got a venture studio that's got a portfolio of about 10 or 15 companies, each of them might have different investors. And then you've got access to a wider pool of investors who understand the model really well. They understand what it's like to be part of a venture studio. So I guess those are the big positives. Um, I was reading a report earlier and it kind of outlined kind of the speed for a startup to get from day zero to their seed round. And for a venture studio is about 10.7 months and then for an average startup to get to their seat traditional startup um, without the venture studio it takes about three years um, so it, you can get to market really really quickly and get to the point where you're raising more money and building the business much quicker um, so I think there's tons of benefits but that being said it's also a risk right because when you bring on a venture studio really early on as a founder, you kind of put yourself into a position where you can't make the decisions as quickly as you want to. Sometimes you want to talk about it with your team. And I think sometimes it's good. It's much better to be, to have people ask you why, why not? Uh, sometimes it can be a bit of a challenge because you know, deep down you want to do something, but you probably need to speak about it with, with your, with, with your co-founding team. So I guess that's a bit of a challenge. Um, there's also the wider risks of resourcing, having a team that's competent, not competent. So I think whenever a founder comes in, it's probably worth doing as much due diligence as possible on the venture studio. Um, what have they done before? Have they had issues? Um, what are some of the products they built? Are the founders who have worked in, as part of the, the, the venture studio's portfolio, are they happy with the work that's been done? I think those are all important things, founders should ask and that's just me being rational at this point right and that's me speaking as a founder 
to to fellow founders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, I guess that really shines a light on the whole model and how it works. Thank you for that. So let's wrap up our section about the boot camp. And finally, I guess we want to know uh, when founders finish the boot camp, what will they be able to do next? And I guess for the most important part, uh, what will the, the winner from the boot camp receive in terms of further support from Parallect? Yeah, so I guess at the end of the boot camp, Ideally, the founder would have validated the problem to some extent, built up the earliest bit of traction that they can. So they might have gone from zero um, people on a wait list or zero people on the database to maybe having 20, 25, 30. And even though that sounds like a really trivial number, um, having a really good quality of people out there who have bought in and understand the business and can become people you lean on. That's what we want founders to have at the end of it. Um, from there, we kind of expect them to be in a way better position to articulate their business to customers and to investors. So we're not holding anyone's hands to say, you have to work with us going forward. Um, hopefully they do want to work with us. Hopefully they go fundraise and then come back to us and say, let's work together. You've got an awesome engineering team. Um, but in many cases, they might not. They might realize having a startup's not for them. They might realize they might need to work on their idea a bit more. Anything like that could happen. Um, probably when most founders who are coming on are looking forward to is the MVP build. So we want to put founders in the best possible position to speak to investors. So we're basically going to choose one out of the five startups um, after a pitch day on the 20th of March. Uh, who will get an MVP bill from our team now. It really depends on the startup, how long that will be, um, how detailed the MVP will be, how many features. It really depends. So we can't just say we're going to put a month of time into it. it. It really depends on the business and we're going to do our best to help them. And on top of that, we're also going to help with fundraising. So it's not necessarily us putting money into the business, but it's how can we set up the right infrastructure for the business to execute on a good fundraising plan over the next few months. And we're going to work with a couple of partners to help the founders do that. Awesome. Well, I'm very excited about the program also because I will get to interview a few more founders to <laughs> take part uh, and let them share their journey at the beginning and middle and end probably of the bootcamp. So stay tuned for those interviews, everyone. Uh, but let's talk about body for a little bit before we wrap up, uh, because it's your baby, as we say. Uh, so you, you mentioned there that uh, startups very often change their focus in the early days. And in our earlier conversation, you said that body had changed a lot since you founded it. So uh, Tell us a little bit about that story. What did the idea start as and what is it now? Yeah, so I guess high-level body is a health tech business that helps physiotherapy patients recovering from injury do so with insightful, engaging, and empowering data at hand. Uh, that's my sales pitch. Um, but effectively, what we're trying to do is help people have the data at home without having to go into a clinic as regularly. That's a big problem people are facing. So um, I'll take the UK market, for example. Um, the wait time to go to the National Health Service for physiotherapy averages 45 days. In some cases, people are waiting months for a physiotherapy appointment. Um, in, some, in some cases, it's way better. People's alternative is to go to a private clinic and there they'd be finding themselves paying about 40 to 60 pounds for, for a 30 minute session. Most people can afford a sustainable um, recovery plan of going to a clinic, getting that rapid advice. Um, so what that creates is that be it, be it the public hospital or private clinics, they tend to give people plans as, as with any fitness trainer to go away. Do your, do your recovery plan and come back in a few weeks and we'll see how you're doing. And the drop-off rate of people actually doing it 
and not doing it is about 70%. So 70% of people actually just drop off their plan. And that that's the problem we want to solve. So I ended up interviewing a lot of people who were in that situation. And the big, big biggest reason why people drop off is purely because they don't know whether they're getting better. So they have no feedback on, on how they're progressing. So our goal from there was to figure out how we can help people um, visualize that data as easily as possible without going in. So that's the whole premise of what we're doing. Um, in terms of how we've developed since it since it was conceived, um, it was actually a laughable concept that I started with. Um, and a lot of people who are close to me know I spoke about robots when I started, started off with body, um, which is quite funny. Um, but it was all to solve the same problem. So I, when I first had the idea, it was purely because I was recovering from my own injury and I didn't really want to pay a lot of money to go into a physio clinic um, regularly. So I was like, I need to develop a robot that can help me at home. So you can see that the premise is the same. The approach was really um, vague, but I think what happened from there was kind of what I'll be speaking to founders with on the bootcamp is that let's bring it down a little. Let's go talk to people who are in the same position. What was the struggle they're facing? Um, what were the barriers? Why didn't they go into a clinic? What were they looking for? And I think going through that process, we went from an idea for robots to an idea of creating massage and manual therapy devices to then going to um, progress trackers, which is not currently available. And it's a much more interesting space. And it's something that we've now seen adds so much value. And I think going through that process of problem validation, speaking to customers is how we got there. Okay. Uh, but going off of the what's on the site, uh, go check it out. It's B-O-D-I-I.U-K, body.uk. Uh, it, it appears that it's a very, very uh, niche product at the moment. Yeah. It is uh, a piece of small, simple hardware that goes around right below the knee. Yep. And uh, the app that it connects to on your phone. Uh, so is it specifically just to track progress in rehab from knee injuries? And is that sort of just the beginning or what's your vision? For that? 100% just the beginning. Um it's so easy to try to do too much and solve many problems. Um, what we, sorry, what we wanted to do is figure out problem that we're close with that I can resonate with and really have um, have an impact on, but find a market within this industry that is big enough for us to actually have a good test case on. So we focused on people with knee injuries. Um, I started the business on the back of my own knee injuries. I tore the ligaments in my knee three times. Um, by the time I was about 22. So um, that's why we, we focused on it. But I think that the market size is big in itself. In the UK alone, there's about 126,000 people recovering from knee, injury, knee surgeries. Um, in the US, it's going to rise to about 7 million in the next five years and that's if we only stayed on, on people with knee injuries but we found that to be a really good starting niche now you say that it's a piece of hardware with an app now our hardware is actually functional across any part of the body so if we wanted to measure range of movement in someone's arm for example or hip we, we could actually do that it's just a bit of maths that we need to figure out um but then we're opening ourselves to about 10 other markets instead of actually getting in right with one and making all the learnings with one. And I think that's where, as a founder, you've probably got to be a bit careful of not trying to do too much at the, at the beginning when you're probably constrained. Um, if we had millions and millions in funding, probably we might have looked at this, but we want to get it right, do as much of learnings as we can, probably get into market, solve problems for a wide group of people, and then be able to expand. And I think that's the approach I, I, I decided to take as a founder. Okay. Yeah, that's makes a lot of sense. So uh, how how do you go about 
getting people, I guess, to to know about and use uh, body? Uh, are you going via physiotherapists for them to recommend it to their clients? Are you going direct to people who Google, how do I recover from my knee surgery? Yeah, so um, right now we're going through physiotherapists. So we, we haven't released into market yet. Um, there's a few nuances. There's a few challenges with, with hardware devices that you've got to tackle. One for it to not be tacky, one two for it to actually work and offer value. And then being able to connect it to an app, I don't demonstrate the data that's actually meaningful to people. That That's quite a challenge. So we're going to be running tests with um, a local university. We're going to be working with um, the National Health Services Innovation Agency up here in, in, in the northwest of the UK. Um, to get all of those components right. But I've already built a pipeline of physios that we can work with to kind of get the referrals out to patients. And that's going to be our big channel. Um, although we see, I see the business as a long-term B2C, we're actually going to start off in the, in the B2B plus referral um, space purely because we need to get a good... Um, we need to get good exposure with physiotherapists because if you've got a physio um, who's saying that this actually doesn't work, it's a gimmick, when the business dies, they're then. So it's about offering enough value to them for them to see that it's better than the current alternatives, um, working with them to fine-tune the products, and then really getting mass out to market to, to patients. All right. Well, that makes a lot of sense as well. I guess... My perspective, looking at the whole health and fitness connected wearable space, we can dive in a little bit, as you mentioned, to the data challenges. Uh, I've been a sort of amateur runner and cyclist, so it, it seems really messy to me. I've been using different devices to track uh, activity via GPS, via different apps over the last like 10 years or so. Uh, and... I guess there are a lot of like semi-closed ecosystems for this fitness data and they don't really play nicely together uh, has been my experience. And it's hard to sort of get a holistic view of sort of everything you do from a health and fitness perspective. So I'm curious to hear your take on this. Uh, are, are you thinking of like ways to integrate with larger um health apps or platforms in the future? Yeah, so I want to stay away from being considered a fitness product um, because it's not necessarily a fitness device or a fitness tracker. And it's really good to categorize them as two different things. So you think of products like Whoop, Aura Rings, any form of smartwatch. Um, they all help with fitness tracking, so day-to-day -day activity of people. We are focused on solving a problem for people recovering from injuries. So it's more of a health problem that people are facing. It's access to physiotherapy, it's access to um, a physiotherapist, access to a doctor that they're facing, and they need to bridge that gap. So it's important to kind of split the two things. You're absolutely right. There's tons of data. And probably if you take the data from our device and you take the data from your smartwatch and your aura ring that tells you how long you've slept, you could probably put it all together and get a really good assessment of someone's overall health and recovery. Um, and the biggest health challenge over the next few years is figuring out how to aggregate that and make it as easily um not accessible, but consumable for a person, for, for, for the average person, right? Uh, the great thing is that people are much more comfortable interacting with devices at home. So that kind of boards well with us. Um, and they're much more inclined to look for ways to improve their health. And that, that that's a trend that we're seeing. Um, you could probably go to someone over the age of about 60. I, I'll probably refer to people like my parents, for example, who be like, why would I want to track this? I've gone 60 years uh, without ever tracking my health data, and it's unimportant. Uh, a lot of younger people um, see a lot of benefit in it, and I think the biggest opportunity in the health space is for companies who can bring together 
um, the information. I think from Bonnie's perspective, we're not going to try to fall into the trap of trying to be that aggregator. Um, but there are tools that we can use to bring in the information. So I, I've seen a few different startups out there who have created APIs where I can bring in information from my Samsung Samsung Health or my um, whatever the Apple one is. I, I'm, I'm an Android user. Um, that that you can bring them into your health health app and you can bring all the information together. It, it, it's a growing market and there are businesses doing that out there. And I think you say it's really difficult now, but I think in the next few years, you're probably going to see businesses do it really well. I spoke to a founder of a startup that's actually using text messages to aggregate health information. And I spoke to him a couple of days ago, and it's really interesting because you could probably find about four or five different um, sources of health information about yourself, but it's so difficult to consume it all at the same time. And you're getting confounding messages. You're getting so much information that you just don't care. And you're going to open that bottle of wine and sit down and drink it anyway and stay up till two in the morning. So um, it's an interesting space. And I think we're not going to fall into that trap of, of being, a, being an add-on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it yeah, there are a lot of startups sort of tackling this this problem that I've had. My only piece of advice for people that want to get more into whether it's health tracking or fitness tracking or sports tracking is just stay within one brand's sort of ecosystem as much as possible, whether it's Garmin, whether it's Apple, whether it's uh, whoever it is. Uh, because once you start mixing sort of data sources, it doesn't work out that well. All right, but back to body. Um, you mentioned in one post that I saw that uh, you're not a, a, a domain expert in terms of physiotherapy, but you've got a startup that is serving physiotherapists and people that are getting physiotherapy for this uh, any kind of knee injury. Uh, so what was your uh, sort of learnings from that experience? Uh it was really difficult to begin with because it's starting at day zero, you have no network in the industry. You've got no one to go off. You just know there's a problem there and you need to figure out and become a domain expert yourself. Um, I don't think I'm domain expert at all by any means, but I think what I've been able to do over the past year and a half is build up a strong network of people I can ask questions to. Um, I experienced the problem myself for about four years before starting the business. And that's not enough to start a business and be able to execute on it. But I guess over the four years, I started to speak to a lot of people, speak to a lot of patients out there who have gone through the problem, build up a tiny network of physios, of doctors that I can start to reach out to. And I think that was the best starting point for me, uh, reaching out to them, building a strong relationship from them asking them if they know other doctors or physios who'd like to talk to me. And I think going through that process, I could probably say I've got about 30 or 40 physios in my network now. I probably wouldn't say I'm friends with all of them. I'm probably friends with about 10 of them. But that's way more than I had when I first started the idea, right? And that makes up, I think that makes up for me not having the domain expertise. Um, I'm really open-minded. I try to learn. I'm never going to say that I have the right answers, but I think there's a lot of founders who will be in that position. Um, and investors will always say, yeah, but you don't have the domain expertise. And then you can say, yeah, but I did this. I, I, I spoke to all the people in the industry. I, I've got validation from experts, people who have been in the industry for 30 years. They want to work with us. Um, these are all, there, there's always ways to tackle the domain expertise um, issue. It helps being a domain expert. It helps being a vet who wants to solve a problem in the veterinary industry. Um, but there's other ways you can go about it. So it should never be a, a bottleneck, really. Right. And another uh, longtime partner of Parallax, he's got a Substack where he writes about his experience, and it's called Let's Build. I think. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, he mentioned that do- domain expertise, if it's very strong in a founder, it can sometimes act act like blinders. They sort of get tunnel vision on the problem as they see it, as they've seen it over the years, and they sort of build the solution that's in their head without taking into consideration enough input from other people that may have had slightly different experiences from them in the same domain. I think for a founder being naive really helps um, because going into another industry fresh, you can add a lot because I understood tech a fair bit coming into the physiotherapy industry and I knew that there were ways where we could solve problems. And I guess if you're a physio, you might not necessarily know that. I think when I speak to some physios and say, oh, we could probably do this way better than it's currently being done, that naivety really helps because you probably ask different questions to what they might already know. Um, but then you also get humbled a lot. So you'll, you'll say, could it be done this way? And they'll be like, no, you can't do that. And you're like, fair enough. But at least, at least one out of 10 times, you might find something that's really cool. And I think not having domain expertise can also act in your favor because you look at it from a completely fresh perspective. Yeah. Uh, speaking of perspectives, uh, let's say there's a founder in the first cohort, or second cohort of the bootcamp who wants to build something similar, not similar to body, but a, a hardware connected uh, product. Do you have any sort of advice for them from your experience with body that comes to mind? Um, and then I could probably have another two hour after we have that. Um, at the at the beginning, I, I tried to jump straight to finding a co-founder who could build a product I had in mind, and that was a big mistake. Um, brought on two co-founders. Um, both relationships didn't work out. Um, but I wasted a lot of time in doing that because I did that before actually speaking to customers. So I think the biggest advice is try to figure out what problem you're solving, whether hardware is even the right way to go about solving that, because most often it's not. Um, Trying to build a hardware startup is a lengthy process because you've got to do product testing, you've got to get electronics to work, you've got to get your supply chain, you've got to go through regulations if you're doing something completely new. Um, You've got to figure out who the right people to work with are, IP attorneys, all these type of things that might not necessarily work in your favor, might not necessarily move smoothly if you're building something that's actually adding no value. So if you speak to no customers and spend two years doing that, instead of actually figuring out what it is that's adding value, making sure that there are people that want it and then embarking on that journey. That's probably the, the biggest advice um, that I would get. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But I'm still figuring it out as I go right. on. So, so don't take my word for it. All right, all right. And it, it's interesting to just think about hardware and how even like wildly successful things can be off the market in a relatively short period of time. Like the iPod is the first example that springs to mind. It's, it was a hit. It changed the way we listen to music. It it helped pave the way for the smartphone, but you can't buy a new one anymore. It's already done. Uh, so it's interesting. All right. Uh, I guess last question for you about body. Uh, what do you what does success look like for a body maybe six months or a year from now? What is your next sort of vision or goal or milestone? So in six months, I'd like to see our devices in physio's hands. Um, and we would have made sales by getting it there. Um, we have gone through a lot of discovery, a lot of product development, figuring out what value we're going to add. We did a lot of testing and right now we're in a position where we're, we need to really fine tune our mobile application uh, so that it's workable on the Play Store um, and, and, and the App Store. Um, and we need to get our first batch of delivery of um, units. And I think I'm confident that within six months we can achieve that. Um, 
and hopefully get it into the hands of physios. Um, that that that's what succession six months looks like for me. A year from now, um, I'd like to see us referring. Uh, I'd like to see physios referring patients on. Um, I think that's where I'd like the business to be. Awesome. Well, Chris, uh, it's already been over an hour, so. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm sure I'll talk to you again about the boot camp in the future. Uh, good luck talking with the founders, and by the time this comes out, we will probably, maybe, probably have our five startups already lined up for the first cohort. So, uh, see you around, and it's been really informative talking to you. Thanks so well, much. Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. See you.